Price. That's the number one technical indicator. You do best by investing for the longer term. If you can't explain what the business is doing, then that is a huge red flag. Some technological change is going to put you out of business. It really is a genuinely extraordinary situation. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Egg Gotham, and welcome to Opto Sessions, where we interview the top traders and investors from around the world, uncovering their secrets to success. This week, we've got Dr. Jeff Ross, who is both a radiologist and the founder of a successful hedge fund, Valeshire Capital Management, which utilizes an innovative all-weather full-cycle portfolio management strategy for its clients and has achieved triple-digit returns over the past year. In this interview, however, we dive into something both Jeff and I have an interest in, Bitcoin. We go from the very basics, why does Bitcoin have value, to the opportunity and risks ahead in this market environment, including analysing the future performance of stocks versus Bitcoin and any impact from potential rising rates further down the line. We finish up by discussing his films criteria for selecting equities for his portfolio, which is not dissimilar to a VC investing strategy for later stage startups. Jeff has some really interesting insight here and above all, it's very topical. So enjoy. Hi, Jeff. Uh, great to have you on the show today. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me, Ed. And am I right in saying you live in Colorado? I do. Colorado Springs. Brilliant. And um, I've been hearing a lot of uh, people, a lot of people on Twitter, sort of Howard and, and other people I follow, Howard Linden and others, have been talking about a housing boom happening there uh, where you just can't, you know, houses on the market for one day and they're gone. Is that the same Sort of thing happened in Colorado, or it is. It's it's been a an extremely hot housing market, and this and I think actually, if I remember right, I think Colorado Springs has been the hottest of all of the Colorado uh, cities. Really? Yeah. It's it's just a fantastic city. It has lots of room to grow, and for better or for worse, it is growing, and it's growing really fast. It's pretty amazing to watch. Wow. And is this um is this related? What what is causing this boom? I mean, obviously, interest rates are low. Yep. So interest rates are low. That's a that's a huge thing. I think, um, at least in Colorado Springs itself, for one, it's a just a fantastic place to live. It has a great blend of sunshine and it has four seasons, but it doesn't get too cold in the winter and it doesn't get too hot in the summer. You have your mountains to yeah, okay, go out and be active if you if you like to do all that kind of thing. And then the other thing is, it's about an hour south of Denver, and Denver is kind of becoming. Uh, they call it what do they call it Silicon Mountain, um, so it has a it has a big tech community. But Denver is getting pretty expensive, and so people are moving about an hour outside of Denver and commuting into Denver for work. Okay, okay, that makes sense. Cool. I thought we could um, kick off just by talking about um, activity behavior in the market at the moment, and uh, what's been on on top of a lot of people's minds at the moment is we're potentially in a, a stock market bubble. Is that something you agree with? So yes and no. I think bubble is a very specific term, but it, it gets tossed around maybe a little too much these days. I would say we're we're in the maybe early to mid stages of a true bubble. And what I mean is, I think you, especially U.S. stocks, their valuations are are stretched to historically high valuations, mm. uh, and and I and I think it's directly related to um, near historic low interest rates as well as money printing. And we can get into that more if we want, but. Um, I, I think, yes, it's very richly valued, but I'm still not personally seeing this manic, irrational exuberance. I think we're, it's starting to happen. We're seeing it in SPACs and we're seeing it in GameStop and these other kind of things that are going on. So I would say early stages of the final stage, if that makes sense. Yeah, okay. It could just explore a bit the, um, the main causes. I think that'd be, that would be interesting. So you, you think it's primarily driven by, because there are record inflows into the market, especially from retail investors, as far as I've seen some data um, that sort of backs that up more, more than as a percentage of the total, uh, more than ever has been before, or at least in a long time. Um, and wh- where's all this capital coming from? Well, that's a great question. I think, uh, I think right now we are seeing incredible. Uh, amazingly uh, accommodative uh, policies, both from the the central banks, Federal Reserve, and from governments themselves. So fiscal policy and monetary policy are both basically trying to get everybody up off the sidelines. They want everybody to drain their savings accounts and to put it into 
the stock market um, and other assets, they're really increasing speculation because of their accommodative policies. And, and so, yeah, this, this is what starts a bubble and what grows it, and it's going to end very poorly. I really hate to see it. But in the meantime, um, when a bubble does uh, occur, you actually want to participate in those. Otherwise, you miss tremendous gains over a short period of time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, sort of make hay whilst the uh, sun is shining. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So how, how do you approach it then, knowing that at some point you sort of got to tap out early or, you know, have some something in so that when you see a, the start of a big decline or something, you get out early on that. How do you approach that? Yeah, so there, there are multiple ways to approach it. I think that from a, the 10,000 uh, foot view is to participate, but keep your eye on the exit. And that's sort of kind of easy to say, but harder to do in practice. So there, there are several things you can do. One thing I used to do, and I actually think is a good idea for regular investors, is to make sure to use trailing stop losses on everything you do. So if you you have a position in whatever, say say you're you're in some high growth stocks or you happen to get into GameStop on the long side, that's fantastic. Write it up 500% or more, but then make sure to have a trailing stop of say 25% or 30% so that if it does fall down, you you lose a little bit, but you don't lose all of your profits. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's one way to do it. I, I use a different approach um, I tend to look at what the underlying market conditions are doing. So I look at what the economy is doing, uh, whether it's uh, accelerating or decelerating and what inflation is doing. Again, whether it's accelerating or decelerating. And based on those kind of factors, you can, you can kind of read the tea leaves and, and figure out what asset classes are going to be doing well and what, what asset classes statistically may be doing yep. poorly. No, very interesting. Um, I've got a, got a theory that there's also just been a um, the market, the total sort of market of individuals in, interested in the stock market has exploded as well due to things such as easier accessibility and then stories getting picked up in the press, which you know gets mass market attention. Um, is that fair to say that might be contributing quite heavily to this? I think absolutely. Uh, and then on top of that, I think things like Robinhood oh, yes. and these other um, brokerage firms, they now have no trading fees. Well, at their, the they do have trading fees, they're just hidden. But so people don't see the trading fees. So they're much more likely to just buy and sell uh, willy nilly. And then also, it, it really helps, at least in the US here, to, to for lots of people to receive stimulus checks in their bank account that yeah. they, they weren't expecting. So suddenly they have 1200 bucks to play with. That's a okay. that can go a long ways in a, in a stock market. Yeah, especially with options as well. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, very interesting. And so if that's the case, could you say that it's similar to like GameStop? Like if enough people keep on putting money into the market, prices will keep in increasing because the demand's just constantly there and increasing. But at some point, there, you know, there's not infinite demand. Uh, the money might dry up, and that's when you might see the start of the decline. Yes, absolutely. So the, the speculation will work, and it will work amazingly well all the way up until it doesn't work anymore. So basically, once the last speculator jumps in because they can't take watching their friends make 500% mm. or 1,000% over a couple of weeks. Once that last person comes in, that's the official top of the market. And I think we're, we're getting close to that point. I think we still have at least several months to go before we hit it officially. Um, but yeah, and then that's when things turn south and it's going to get ugly for a time. And do you see, because I assume with a lot of leverage positions and stuff, um, there could be quite a rapid decline potentially. Um, yes. And then... Yes. Yeah, extending quite far down, maybe more than people would predict, but potentially a sharp pullback up a little bit as well. Yes. So the best approach probably to ride it out, or would you come out early on something like this? Well, that depends. There's there's lots of different ways to look at this, and I've been through lots of kind of uh, paradigms uh, through this uh, personally, and then also as a professional money manager. But you you need to decide what your values are as an investor. Are you a long term investor, and if so. Yeah, yeah, you just ride these out. You don't take the tax hit by selling. Um, you just look at these huge drawdowns. And I think, again, we may see a, a huge one, 30, 40, 50%, uh, in the, at least in the US markets. Um, and then you just look at those as buying opportunities. It really hurts to look at your portfolio balance. Um, but over the long run, it tends to work out. I was just going to say, do you have cash on the sidelines then to take advantage of? So yeah, I would recommend that most people do that. I yeah. think as we're in this this increasing bubble that's inflating and you're starting to see some amazing gains, I think it's extremely wise to take profits along the way. Take 10% out here or 50% out here. 
uh, and mm-hmm. at least get your your base investment out and your cash out and, and be waiting for a pullback. I'll tell you personally, for as a as a professional investor, I don't do that. Like I said, I, I use market signals more to kind of uh, be invested in what I think is is going to statistically outperform. And so if I if I'm starting to see a lot of red flags in my research, I'll start putting on short positions and, and move more to cash and move more to uh, risk off assets. Okay, so yeah, much more flexible approach to it. And then I just had a, a final thing about the behavior that we're seeing at the moment. Um, we talked to someone called Chris Camillo. I don't know if you, uh, if you follow him, but he talks a lot about um, social arbitrage. Um, and he tries to take advantage of, of the crowd, basically, and, you know, and using social data to inform decisions on what stocks might be doing well. or will, you know, So what will do better, sorry, not might be doing well now, but might do even better. GameStop and et cetera is probably um, what everyone hears about. There's a lot of other opportunities out there um, that may not be so... Uh, similar, but is that something that you think will persist or is it something you, you use at all? So I think it's absolutely fascinating to watch all this and watch what's been going on. To me, it's clearly the evolution of what's happening just, just in the financial markets. We're incorporating social media, groupthink, and things that we see. Uh, it, it's, it's things that uh, I would say the baby boomers don't really understand as well, but uh, millennials and, and Gen Zers, they grew up on social media. They grew up um, uh, making decisions based on what they see uh, going on, what's popular on social media. Yeah, it's it's. I think it's really fun to watch and it's fascinating. Now, I I personally don't get involved on either side of that. I think yes, it's a way to make a quick buck, but it's also a way to lose uh, mm-hmm. everything really quickly. Uh, so I tend to just watch from the sidelines and only invest in things that I have high conviction on. Yeah, fair. Okay, cool. Um, can we just quickly go uh, dig a bit into your background, just a quick overview of your sort of professional career? Because I, I believe you're, in fact, a doctor as well as a hedge fund manager, which is quite an interesting combination. <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, I'll, I'll try to make it quick. So, so back around age 18, 19, 20, I, I had a crossroads decision to make. I, I, I loved investing, but I also loved the idea of being a doctor. So I ultimately decided to uh, go down the doctor route. Uh, and so after undergrad, four years and four years of med school and six years of additional training, I came out on the other side as a, uh, a diagnostic radiologist and a fellowship trained interventional radiologist. And so that was 2008. And that's when we moved here to Colorado Springs. So within about a year of, of getting out and practicing on my own in private practice, I actually started a blog teaching individuals how to invest wisely on their mm. own. And uh, just because I, I always loved it. So that was that was a hobby of mine. And then uh, shortly after, it was picked up by The Motley Fool and then uh, Seeking Alpha and wrote for them and, and developed enough of an audience back then of people who were actually requesting me to manage their own money. And my response to them was always, I was like, you know, I'd love to, but I'm just a doctor. I don't, I don't actually do this <laughs> professionally. And so, but then that put the bug in my ear and I thought, man, what if, what if I could do this for a living? And, yeah. and if so, what would I really want to do? And I, I knew that I didn't want to be a traditional financial planner because I'm, I'm not a salesman. I don't want to shill uh, insurance products or annuities or things like that. No, no offense to them, but that's just not my, my deal. Um, so I thought as a pure investor, like what would be the best thing for me to do? And so I decided to open a hedge fund for uh, friends and family. Uh, and I, basically with the mandate that I'm going to invest this all across the world in whatever asset class I think is going to perform the best. I'll be long, short. It could be stocks, bonds, commodities, cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, you name it. I, I'll, I'll invest if I think it's going to be a safe way to profit. Um, and so I started Valeshire Capital Management uh, back in 2014 and Valeshire Partners, that's the hedge fund. Uh, with the hedge fund was just $120,000 of my own money that I saved up. And I just turned this, the open sign on and, and started business. And so it was, it was a slog. So I was doing that as a side gig uh, and also working full-time as a physician. Uh, and I did that until 2015. And then it got to be too much. I was on call every fourth night um, as an Yeah, I was going to say, radios. I don't know how you manage that. Oh, uh, it was killer. It, it just about killed me. But my wife is a saint and, and she put up with it. And my three kids have always... Uh, been uh, supporters of me. So I'm thankful for that. But so uh, around that time, I switched from full-time medicine to fast forward to today. Now I do uh, what's called teleradiology. So I just practice radiology from my home office. 
and I have time during the week to uh, also manage Veilshire, and I do that. I do that. It's my baby, so I, I manage Veilshire 24/7, yeah. 365. Whenever any of my clients has a need, I'm 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 there for them. Uh, so yeah, so the hedge fund's been up and going since then, and um, and now my I have my registered investment advisory. That's the separately managed accounts that I do, and that's up to about a hundred clients or so. And so we're we're making it. It's a lot of fun, and that's what I hope to do uh, until the day I die. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Um, and sorry, did you say you you so you run the tele radiology? Is that right from home? Yes. Is that from so? Home. Client, you, are you saying clients come to you, or or is it just over um, the internet and stuff? It's all, so, so as a radiologist, so I'm the guy that reads. So if you go into the hospital and you yep. get, say, a CT or MRI or X-ray or ultrasound, yeah. I'm the doctor that the, the images actually come across my okay, desk. Okay. So, so behind you... me, I have, you can't see it, but I have five computer monitors that, that put up the patient images and I dictate a report on there. And then that goes into the, the medical records. Wow. That's pretty sad. Throughout the day, you're swapping between the hedge fund and your, your radiology. Sort of. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm. I'm basically focused on the medicine while I'm doing that. Um, but yeah. then when that's over and then I have days off preserved per week that I can yes, just do. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Brilliant. And what, so what in particular attracts you about the financial markets? You obviously had an interest most of your life. Yeah. Oh, I love it. They're super interesting to me. It, it's, it's always changing. It's like a game of chess that never ends because the, the board is always changing on you. Yeah. I tell my kids all the time and my friends, I, I say, always be learning. And, and if you love learning, you can, you can have what it takes to become a great investor. I think you have to love the challenge of the markets changing all of the time. And if, if you're willing to put in the time and the effort to read and to study uh, and to change your mind as the underlying facts change, then you can do well as an investor. And I'd say yeah. conversely, if you're not willing to learn and you, you're very dogmatic in what you you believe, I, those people tend to not do well over time as investors. Yeah, I mean, things have changed substantially over the last year and continue throughout the year, actually. Things like this, I mean, the GameStop thing was new. Uh, right. Probably not the, the last we'll see of things, things like that. But yeah, they're very interesting this year. Yeah, um, for sure. And also, yeah, it's the right time to probably talk about it because I've been... Wait, excited to talk to you about Bitcoin. Because nice. uh, I know I know you're very um, very into Bitcoin, and I follow you pretty closely along with a few others um, on Twitter. Raul from Real Vision and Willie Woo from um, on Twitter as well. Um, I've also sort of re- recently rebalanced my portfolio to be re- relatively heavily uh, on, on the sort of crypto side, Ethereum and Bitcoin. Um, just wanted to start like asking. From your point of view, for the benefit of the listeners, because I think there's a lot of uh, confusion out there still, what, what is Bitcoin? And, and most importantly, what, why do you think it has value? Hmm. That's a great question. So what is Bitcoin? Uh, Bitcoin is truly scarce, decentralized digital currency. All, all of the Bitcoin transactions that occur, buy, sell, uh, and storage, they, they're all recorded on an open source distributed ledger that's called blockchain. And I'm not a technologist, so I don't want to get into all of that. But but basically, it means that you can see every transaction that goes on in real time because the blockchain, which is the distributed ledger, is updated every 10 minutes or so for all the world to see. So I, in a, in a, that's kind of the technical answer. I, what I like to say, and I post it on Twitter all the time, it's the world's greatest savings technology and store of value. And so store of value, I, I break that down into three different categories to, for people to think about because people understand this. So fiat currency, government money that we hold in our hands, that is a depreciating store of value over time. Gold, which has been around and in, in use as, as a basically a form of money for about whatever, four to 6,000 years or however you calculate it, that is a stable store of value. And Bitcoin is an appreciating store of value. And then, so you would say, well, why does it have value? A lot of, especially older people, again, who are just not as technologically savvy. And I consider myself, by the way, to be kind of in between. I'm a Gen Xer, so I kind of get it and I kind of don't. And and so I'm with humility. I talk about the the technological side of this stuff. But I think, why why does it have value? You can compare it to art, I think, or other collectibles like baseball cards or stamps or even gold. These things have value because people believe it has value. And that sounds funny, but a lot of these things are basically just a belief system. And so one example I like to use is you think of paintings. You know, there's there's a million new paintings in the world or more every day. Every every day there's moms at, and dads at home with their 
with their school kids and they're, they're making art, you know, or they're in art mm -hmm. class in school or whatever, you know, there's, there's also professional and non-professional painters. They make paintings and 99.9% .9 of those paintings will never have any real value. But when you get a painting from somebody, say like Picasso or Monet, they have value because people perceive that they should have value. And so those paintings, which are scarce, uh, get increasingly valuable from a price perspective over time as more and more people believe in it. And so that just gets down to Metcalfe's law, that the value of a network is proportional to the square of connected users. That was first coined with, uh, with the telephone, I believe. You know, One telephone by itself doesn't do anything, but if you have uh, two people with phones, then suddenly it has value because you can call each other. And as more and more people get telephones, the, the network gets more and more valuable. So yes. it's just the same with Bitcoin. It has value because people believe that it has value as a store of value. And over time, as more and more people believe that and the network grows, it just gets exponentially um, more valuable. And, that, and that's reflected in the price. Yep. And I know, because um, I, I follow you on Twitter, like I said, um, you, you're constantly saying that Bitcoin's still cheap. And, and um, obviously, you know, it makes sense when you, when you, when you look at it in, in terms of the value you're talking about. Um, and many people compare it to gold, et cetera. Mm. Uh, and it's only a fraction of the market size of that at the moment. Um, and wh how long do you think it's got to go? If it's cheap now, wh where could it be in the future? Oh man, that's a loaded question. And I, and I, people are going to think I'm crazy when I talk about it, but I'll tell you, I think about Bitcoin in terms of its overall market cap and where it is and where I think its market cap is going to go. So, so right now today, the, the market cap of Bitcoin uh, is about $900 billion. And that sounds like a lot. And it is a huge, huge amount of growth since it started from zero about 11 years ago. But that still is very small. I mean, Amazon and Apple and uh, these other companies, Alphabet, they're, they're all still quite a bit bigger than the Bitcoin network, which I think yeah. is insane if you think about the applications and where it's going. But so where do I think it's going? I think in the short term that we still have a ways to go in this bull market. And I think that the value of Bitcoin is going to try to approach the value of gold. And that's been, the, there's different ways to calculate that. But a general rule of thumb right now is that gold is worth about $10 trillion. And so I wouldn't be surprised to see Bitcoin attempt to try to get up to the value of gold this year. So within the next 12 months, yeah. I wouldn't, I, I would, I'm, I'm actually expecting to see another about five fold rise from here and possibly a uh, 10 fold rise for, yes. before it corrects again. And what are the main driving forces behind that? Why is it, why is it picked up steam now? Do you think? Uh, well, I think a big part of it is the narrative. So I think people are, the, the common narrative we're seeing right now is gold 2.0. So again, I'm a former gold guy myself. And I, about a year ago, sold all of my gold and silver to buy Bitcoin because I, I just wow. was comparing the two and I thought, this is insane. Why would I not own Bitcoin? Um, and most people come to that conclusion eventually, even though there are a lot of uh, <laughs> staunch defenders of the of the old analog way. Yeah. That's fine. That's fine. I, I respect that. People got to do what we got to do. Um, but so I think the narrative of gold 2.0 is going to play out this this cycle. And so that's why I say I think it's going to try to approach that uh, $10 trillion uh, value. Why do I think that? Because the players coming in now are big players. So it used to just be retail investors yeah. that were driving the market. Now, obviously, it's all over the news. So MicroStrategy and Michael, Michael Saylor, he was kind of the, the pioneer of doing this and putting the, the majority, actually more than their... Um, their uh, treasury uh, into Bitcoin, which is awesome as a reserve yeah. asset. And then Square followed suit and Tesla just recently followed suit. And yeah. so I think we're going to see more and more corporations. Dominoes are falling. Exactly. The dominoes are falling and they're, and they're big dominoes. Now we're talking billions of dollars. Per Ray dominoes. Dalio. Yep. Ray Dalio, Stan Druckenmiller, all the, all the hedge fund legends are getting into it. So, so I think we are kind of in the mid stages of this bull market and we're going to see the speculative mania soon where we won't even, you're not even going to believe how fast the price is going to rise some days. And you're going to think, man, I'm crazy for not taking profits. And then you're going to kick yourself for taking profits because the next day yeah. it's going to go up another 20, 30, 40%. So yeah, cr crazy times coming, I think before, before the next bear market. It's incredible. It's, it, we're almost witnessing um a tr transfer of wealth never seen before if this does play out and it well even now you you know you're getting there's billionaires being created by this that would have never been so otherwise and it's almost new wealth coming through just from 
people that have been uh, adopting cryptocurrencies. Yeah. Right. And it's awesome. And I, I just think what we're really, we're transitioning from the centralized legacy financial system to the decentralized uh, network of empowered individuals all around the world. So anyone with an uh, internet connection anywhere can own a piece of Bitcoin and literally change their financial future for themselves and for their family. I just think it's absolutely fantastic. You know, I'm a, I'm a hedge fund manager, but I'm, I'm one of the little guys. I, I'm in Colorado and I love seeing the David versus Goliath story and the yeah. little guy finally winning after after tons and tons and tons of uh, stress and strife. Um, it's awesome. So I'm I'm a I'm a huge proponent of it. We hope you're enjoying the episode. For interviews like this every Thursday, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, make sure you give us a star rating and leave guest suggestions along with any other feedback in the review section. Now back to the show. A common. Um... I think that a lot of people would say when at least I talk to them about uh, Bitcoin and things is they they think the government will never accept it if it, you know and that that will be the reason why it won't get mass adoption. There's actually a, in America increasingly I see that they're they're regulating in a in a positive way though, and it seems to be some uh, at least some states are taking um, uh, a more forward looking approach to it than others. Um, do you think that's still a risk or and, or is that just never going to happen because it's obviously decentralized you'd have to have globally all countries would have to come together to to restrict it in some way but that's i mean that's never going to happen right right so uh, yes i completely agree with you that was actually my biggest concern up until about a year ago i thought you know the u.s government could clamp they could see it as a threat to you know the the u.s dollar being the world's reserve currency and all the benefits that they have from that um, they could clamp down like they did back in the 1930s, like they confiscated gold and made it illegal to own it. They could say Bitcoin, you know, it, it is illegal for you to own it. They could shut down yeah. uh, miners and all that stuff. So that was to me the biggest uh, concern for the future of Bitcoin, at least as far as in America for for U.S. holders. Yeah. Um, I don't think that that is the way we've chosen to go. And that makes me exceedingly happy. Like you said, states are leading the way. So Wyoming is the just north of me. They're, they're just doing a rock star job of, of laying the groundwork for the new uh, financial future. Caitlin Long and Trace Mayer and these guys are, they're very busy setting up the new laws so that um, this new parallel financial system will um, be legal and be protected. And, and its users will also be protected going forward. So I tell people, you know, stop, stopping, uh, or I, I'd say shutting down Bitcoin is as easy as shutting down the internet. And that's tongue in cheek, obviously, because you basically can't shut down the internet and you can't shut down Bitcoin. Even if, you know, 99% of the governments around the world made it illegal and they went door to door and stole your computers and, and smashed them. As long as a single computer is running a node with Bitcoin on it, it, it survives. And so there's basically no feasible way to shut it down at this point. It's, and, and seeing all the institutions coming on board and seeing governments, I'd say, indirectly approve it through regulation. Um, I, I'm, I'm very confident that it's, it's not going anywhere, at least in free countries. And the logical next question is, what's the future of fiat currency then? Because it, it, it does have an impact on it, at least... As far as I can see, it, you know, well, it's partly impacted by the, the, the printing of money that we're seeing and potential inflation that we're going to see, which is devaluing it. Why are people going to want to uh, hold that if, if you've got some, maybe not Bitcoin, but some other coin that uh, you can easily transact for everyday use? Sure. Yeah. So I think, I think fiat currency in its current form will fail. Uh, and, and that's just the natural history of fiat. People get all uptight, especially it's amazing. There's kind of a movement going on right now. Like you're almost like it's treasonous <laughs> to say anything bad about fiat. Um, but, but I just think that's crazy. I mean, fiat depreciates over time. The whole goal of fiat is to get you to spend it and consume more and drive your country's GDP. That's literally what Keynesian economics is. That's what uh, we're seeing the end stages of right now. It's going to end in an epic bubble pop and it's going to be miserable again for market participants all around the world. People are going to lose jobs. So that's that's just the end game of fiat. That's what happens. But I think a, a new type of fiat will arise. It's going to be these digital uh, central bank currencies. All of the major governments will have them. It's basically programmable fiat. It's still going to be the same. It's still going to have the same weaknesses in that they can print to infinity. And as long as you can print to infinity, that drives mathematically, that drives the value down to zero over time. Um, but I think I really think that just like in the old days, 
central banks backed their uh, currencies with gold in their re- as a reserve asset. I think the digital currencies are going to back their currencies with Bitcoin. And um, Bitcoin is the world's only honest money. It's this honest open ledger that everybody can see, so you can't manipulate it, which is fantastic. So I think all of the future uh, uh, fiat currencies are going to be at least partially based on uh, Bitcoin, and that will keep them keep them at least a little bit honest. Yeah, yeah. So what key events do you think need to happen this year for Bitcoin to, uh, or uh, even actually, let's say further than that, to displace gold as a, as say as a superior store of value? What need? What does it still need to overcome? Sure. So I think um, I think it's we're actually seeing that already in real time. I think gold is being displaced. I think as people study Bitcoin more and more, and it's hard to ignore Bitcoin, right? It's on the headlines all over. It's it's it was a year ago in March. It was uh, under five thousand dollars per Bitcoin, and now it's almost fifty thousand. So it's hard to ignore something that's gone up ten x in a year. Uh, and, and because of that, people are starting to learn about it. And now it's ironic because gold bugs are, they're almost the most vocal, angry opponents of Bitcoin currently. Um, but gold bugs agree almost, I would say, 99% with everything that Bitcoin stands for. They love, you know, it's the store of value. It's an alternative to government fiat currency. It's based on Austrian economics and honest money, things like that. So I think we're seeing that transition happen right now. I think that when we see the price of Bitcoin, the market cap approach 10 trillion uh, in the coming 12 months, that more and more people will see it as, yes, indeed, it is officially replacing gold. And then ironically, I think what's going to happen is then we're going to get a bear market. It won't quite reach parity with gold. Uh, And again, that's based on the stock to flow model, cross asset model. We don't have to get into that. We can't. I'm interested in that. Could you you go and... Uh, my next question was actually related to that. So sure. I was just interested to see why you picked out that level and you think it's temporary. Exactly. So so right now, after the most recent halving in May of 2020, the stock to flow ratio of Bitcoin is somewhere in the 50s. I don't have the exact number. Um, maybe you do. But uh, And gold, the stock to flow ratio is in the low 60s, like 60s. So it's something like 62 and 52 gold to Bitcoin. We uh, Humans, for whatever reason, assign market cap value based on the amount of the amount of a scarce asset that's in existence and then uh, divided by the flow of the new asset coming into uh, production so adding to that stock uh, so like gold right now has a stock to flow ratio of 62 that means that they have about 62 years worth of gold based on the current flow that's coming in. And gold, so so, uh, so I'm sorry, Bitcoin is similar, but it's about at 52 based on that current methodology. That's why I think that it's going to approach value of gold as a market cap, but then not reach it. And then ironically, I think, uh, and no offense to him, but Peter Schiff and people like him who are just staunch gold bugs and, and very vocal about it, they're going to just mock and ridicule Bitcoin in 2022 and 2023 and what a failure and it's going to zero and see it, it's not the same as gold. And then the next cycle, so a, a year or two after that, 2024, 2025, Bitcoin's absolutely just going to rip past um, gold after the next halving because the stock to flow ratio is going to go over 100 uh, and you, there aren't many assets, if any, that have stock to flow ratios that high. So we're going to see how high Bitcoin can go. But I actually think at that point, it's going to start approaching $100 trillion in market capitalization. Wow. And that's we're not even going to compare it to gold anymore. That's just going to be kind of a footnote. In books. <laughs> and this is related to Bitcoin. I don't actually know myself, but at some point, there's no, there's no more Bitcoins to mine. Is that, is that right? Yep. So in the year 2140, they're going to be done mining Bitcoin officially, and we're going to have the full, uh, uh, not quite, it's almost exactly 21 million Bitcoin, just a little less, actually. Yeah. Uh, and so at that point, the inflation rate goes to zero. And so we're going to see what happens when inflation is is zero and it's a perfectly scarce asset. What will the value be? I think at that point, Bitcoin just completely stops growing and it's basically just considered the, the yep. base currency or the reserve asset mm-hmm. um, across the world. Um, I you just like uh, I think I believe it was Mark Andreessen who famously said software is eating the world. I I say on on Twitter often that Bitcoin is eating the legacy financial system. Yeah. So I think until all financial items of any kind are priced in Bitcoin, uh, it will still continue to grow. And how how much of a um, 
correction are you, are you predicting after this sort of like it almost hit parity of gold it's going to come off because of stock flow model are we going to see a similar sort of i mean there's been quite a few sort of 90 percent declines over time right so the, yeah there are very smart people that say this might be the the bitcoin super cycle that we're going to not see these cyclical movements anymore mm-hmm. Uh, very smart people. Dan Held is one of the main proponents, and, and I respect his opinion a lot. But I disagree. I, I, you know, I come from a finance background. I think markets are always markets, and that means they're driven by people with emotions. And so you have your bull markets and manic phases, and you have your your bear markets and and your fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Your FUD. Uh, so. My, I, I've come out publicly in saying this, and I don't know why I do this because all it does is <laughs> just lead to trouble. But but my current prediction is in this bull market, I think we see Bitcoin reach a peak price of somewhere between four and five hundred thousand dollars per Bitcoin, and then I think we see a drop about eighty percent or so um, to somewhere between eighty thousand and a hundred thousand per Bitcoin. So that seems high right now, but that's going to be painful after the yeah, of bull market. Right. So, and then I think it stabilizes. I'm I'm a big believer in again this uh, Plan B. He came up with the stock to flow cross asset model, mm-hmm. and so that has kind of a mid range price of about two hundred eighty eight thousand per Bitcoin. And I think that's about right. I think we'll see that in the coming years as kind of the average price until the next bull market. And so, subsequently after this, so you reckon it will take a couple of years for Bitcoin to stabilize again, and and start sort of moving forward to the next the the final bull cycle. You could you could say. Yeah, possibly. You know, and it's funny because it's it's so interesting. It's Bitcoin is unlike anything I've ever seen before. It's not like any other asset. It it literally is programmed to um, decrease its supply in a in a mathematically provable way, and and that just incites increased demand. And when you have those two factors together, it's it's like programmed price increases, yeah. and it's really amazing. But it's just what it does, and it's these having cycles that happen. They're a little less than every four years. So I just kind of base everything off of what's happening and where it is in relation to the having cycle. Mm. So yeah, I think it kind of levels off around 288-ish. It won't exactly be that. It just kind of flirts around that line. Yeah. And then as we go through the next having cycle, then we're just going to go through all this again. There's going to be another huge bull market. Mm. And then I think another uh, bear market as well. So I don't know when the cycle stops yeah, yeah, and, and how high the price has to go before it quits cycling. But um, I think it's definitely much higher from today's prices. Yeah, yeah, yeah of course. Um, and knowing that, so that knowing that's your game plan, how do you, do you, are you going to ride out that sort of decline? Cause it's, I suppose, it, um, do you see yourselves trying to take advantage of coming out towards the peak hysteria of this, this like cycle and then buying when it's had some sort of a decline? Sure. So you want to know my secret sauce, huh? So <laughs> No, so so I'll tell you. Th- th- I actually, this is how I counsel my friends and my clients on this. So this is not personal investing advice, by the way. You know, this is just me me talking. Yeah, of course. Yeah, advice. Yeah. I I break Bitcoin up into two categories, and so on the one hand, I have just my straight up Bitcoin that I own. I bought it on an exchange, have it stored somewhere. I I plan on never touching that Bitcoin until at least twenty thirty. That's my kind of goal. So I look at that as basically a retirement savings account. I put the money in there. I forget about it. I can't touch it. Like once I put yes. it in there, it's locked up. So with that, I'll, yes, I'll ride it up and then I'll ride it down and I'm not going to sell it because I don't want to deal with the taxes. Uh, and I just want to accumulate as much Bitcoin as possible over time, dollar cost averaging. Yeah. Now that's that side. I'm also, you know, I run a hedge fund. I manage accounts for clients. My clients, they're super happy right now because we're killing it in the hedge fund and we're killing it in our separately managed accounts much better than the stock market and things like that. But they will not be happy if if it drops 80%. And so I, that's unacceptable for them. And as a money manager, I think that's unacceptable, especially if I think it's avoidable. And I do believe it is avoidable. So I watch for signs that we've reached the kind of like how we look for signs in the stock market. Are, are we at the of the bubble, you know, are we somewhere near the top? So when I think we're basically near the top of the current Bitcoin cycle, yes, the stuff that I hold in my hedge fund and the stuff that I hold in separately managed accounts, I will sell some or possibly even all of it. I mean, like I, I'll go any direction. So if I really believe that we're past the peak, and that things are going to be really rough for the next year, I mean, I'll short Bitcoin. You know, I'll I'll go against it just to make to protect my clients' wealth and to make as uh, max out our profits. I really want people. You know, I'm I'm a 
a lot of people follow me on Twitter and I feel like I'm kind of the, the life coach for some people, which is, is I, I, I like it and I hate it too, because I don't want people to rely on, on me and I'm not trying to give personal investing advice. But I, I believe in Bitcoin. I'm, a, I'm an absolute Bitcoin fanatic. I'm not a maximalist. Uh, and we could, that's a whole different subject, but, but I, I'm a huge fanatic and believer in it. So fundamentally, I believe in Bitcoin and I think it's here to stay and I will hold my personal Bitcoin for the rest of my life and hopefully pass it on to my kids and grandkids someday. That's great. And um, one thing it's, I've been thinking about is obviously, so we've been talking about stock market bubble. Um, obviously, there's other assets in the market. One is Bitcoin and um, studies have shown that it's got um, pretty low uh, positive correlation to stocks. Um, as far as I, I know, unless you, you, you have heard anything otherwise, but if, if uh, what is, would you say it's better to be in Bitcoin now than stocks, theoretically? So right now, right so, now, yeah. Right now, so so yes, so I think that stocks will do well for the the next uh, several months, um, but I think that Bitcoin will do much better. It's a tweet I recently posted. It was it was a, a joke tweet from from Alpha saying that I'm sorry, stocks. Oh lost, yes, but I've left you. I've moved on to Bitcoin and crypto. I truly believe that because of the uh, quantitative easing and the low interest rates and the you know the the massive amounts of uh, monetary supply increases that we've seen. We are literally completely sucking dry all of the alpha out of the stock markets and bond markets. It's I, I just think of it like a giant sponge yeah, that's totally yeah. dry, that's and we're just doing desperately squeezing it to get one last drop of alpha out. Mm -hmm. And then, and then that we we've taken we've stolen all of the future profits in the stock market at least for the next decade or so, and we've we've given them to ourselves today. So we're going to have to pay for that at some point, and I think that's coming soon. Um, so. Bitcoin has way more alpha. I mean, how, how do you even compare? It's gone up about 200% per year since its inception. I mean, there's, there's nothing that compares that. And in fact, since I got bit by the Bitcoin bug a couple of years ago, I literally, I'm, I'm like losing interest in other asset classes because, <laughs> I mean, you tell me like, whatever, I, Amazon, Amazon went up 22%. I'm like, well, that's awesome. You know, Bitcoin went up 10, you know, 10 times in that same amount of time. And so it's, it's so hard to compare these things to each other. Yeah. And as a fund manager, I try to go where the, the alpha is. And, and so if getting back to your original question, would I, what would I invest in? I would for sure invest in Bitcoin if I had to choose between the two. Yep. Um, but speaking to your correlation question, when the market panics, like it did uh, back when the when COVID hit back last February, March, April. Yeah, you did April. see Bitcoin go lot down a lot. It, it, you're right. It, it's a it's a risk on asset, and so it, you know we we like to think of it as a safe haven, but it is volatile, and so it will get whooped, also. And uh, so we'll we'll have to see how I deal with that at the time. But but yeah, I will get cautious on it. I'm I'm very uncautious at the moment. Get cautious if if red flags start to mm -hmm, appear. Mm -hmm. And theoretically, there could be. Um, the Fed's trying to drive inflation, and if there is higher inflation in the future, what impact do you think ha that has on Bitcoin? Well, you know, I think Bitcoin is going to keep doing what it does regardless of what the Fed does, but it's basically because of federally mandated inflation that Bitcoin even exists. That's its purpose. Yeah. It's as, as the dollar continues to devalue, as your purchasing power erodes, people desperately want to save their money. You know, people work day in and day out. We're all a bunch of plebs trying to save up and save for our kids and, and college and university and retirement and all that stuff. And but but our, yeah. our dollars and and whatever fiat we have, they're devaluating so quickly that it, it it makes us desperate to find anything that will hold the store of value against that appreciation. And so Bitcoin was literally created. It's it's the yin to the to the yang of fiat currencies. So it will just continue to do what it's do. That that's why I think it's just going to eat the entire financial system, the legacy financial system, and it will grow and grow. And the and the central banks will print and print, and it's just going to be a, a a yin yang type relationship. It's kind of like I think it was in the fifties or sixties. These really bad horror movies came out, and one of them was called The Blob. And the blob just kind of got bigger and bigger, and the more you tried to attack it, it just sort of absorbed the energy and grew bigger and bigger. And that's kind of in my mind how I view Bitcoin. It will just absorb all of this foolishness and nonsense and, and become yeah. this huge reserve asset. Even in a scenario where, um, say, they had to increase rates, um, and so suddenly your fiat currency 
you can get you know a standard rate from savings or whatever and maybe it controls the inflation um in some way do you think that's at all a, a sort of risk to i mean it doesn't look like that's the way it's going to play out but i'm just putting, putting through scenarios in my mind is that, is that sure. a risk or not so so again no if we were talking about something like stocks um yes so people always want to put their money to where it's treated best. So if, if bond rates eventually rise and get to be 5% or 10%, you know, which is almost unthinkable now because they're zero or negative in, in some European countries, um, then, then you think, well, man, can I really earn a better yield owning my stocks than these bonds that are yielding 10%? And a lot of times the answer is no. And so people say, well, I don't want to take that risk. I'm going to stick with stocks. But like I said earlier, Bitcoin appreciates at one to 200% per year, which is insane. And so like, there's no reason any logical person would put your money in bonds that are, you know, yielding 10% if you can still make a hundred percent on your Bitcoin. And and I would argue that it's a very safe hundred percent. People think I'm crazy, but I actually think Bitcoin is the safest asset uh, for your money. Um, People argue vehemently against me because they talk about its volatility, I always counter that volatility actually is not risk, despite what you learn in your business classes and your MBA. I know because I, I took them. I have a MBA yeah. in finance too. It's just nonsense. Like volatility is not risk. Uh, true financial risk is the uh, the odds of you losing uh, your money, your purchasing power, your precious capital over time. And so, anyways, that's <laughs> that's a topic for another day. Yeah. Um... That's really interesting. And I've just got one last question on the uh, sort of crypto sort of theme. Um, what so uh, something related to the social arbitrage thing happening earlier? Uh, we talked about earlier. Sorry, was um, Dogecoin? Um, Elon's obviously been pumping it recently on his Twitter account. I just thought, uh, what do you think about Elon's like motivation for doing that? Is he just trying to support a decentralized system? Is that his way of sort of helping it succeed? Sure. Well, I tell you, Elon, man, people love him and hate him. I, I think he's brilliant. And I think he's a total goofball. I, I mean, he's hilarious. I just get such a kick out of the <laughs> stuff he does. And, and the way he's shaping our, our uh, society is, is awesome. So I think to him that the Dogecoin deal is just a complete distraction. I don't know if what he did is, I think it's legal. I, I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> don't quote me on this. But I think he was distracting everybody with Dogecoin while his company was loading up with Bitcoin. I, maybe not. Um, I don't, I don't want to suggest anything. So I just think he's just a goofball. And he's like, well, yeah, you know, and he just likes messing with people. Uh, Dogecoin was created literally as a joke of a oh, cryptocurrency. Yeah. And, and so like I, I tweet, Dogecoin is temporary. Bitcoin is forever. Like you can speculate in it if you want to. And maybe like uh, AMC and GameStop, you'll make some a quick profit. But I stay away from all that stuff. I don't believe in Dogecoin. I think it's a joke. It's it. People might make money, but in in the end, I think it's probably going to zero. Yeah, agreed, agreed. And um, final question, actually, I just remembered. So, um, just on 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 Bitcoin, um, how some people don't like the idea of buying Bitcoin, um, you know, actual Bitcoin. So they prefer to sort of maybe get some sort of um, allocation to it through through stocks or ETFs and stuff. Are, are there anything you think um, is is sort of like related to that? So you could take sort of advantage of that? Sure, sure. So uh, for instance, in my own fund and for my Veilshire clients, I hold the Grayscale product. So Grayscale Bitcoin Trust is one way to do it. Um, I get a, I get some flack for that because often it trades at a premium and they also have a 2% annual management fee, which I think is steep. But uh, you you the benefit of using that in your brokerage account is one, you can trade it like a stock can buy and sell uh, on in a day and it's very easy to use. It's much easier than uh, creating accounts uh, at say like a Coinbase and, and storing your old money, storing your own Bitcoin and, and remembering your keys, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's worth the fee. I think the storage that they they utilize is um, is worth the price. Regarding the premiums, the premiums do go up and down and sometimes they can get extreme. But again, I use that to my advantage because market participants are emotional. And so when we get to the peak of this market cycle, the premium is going to be huge. And you know what? That's when I plan on selling. And we'll actually, that will mean our investors will uh, earn a premium as well. That's interesting. I don't have any problem with the premium. Yeah. So that's one way. And I'll just throw out. And then other ways, obviously, there are these companies now that are putting tons of Bitcoin on their balance sheets. 
or and or they uh, have uh, Bitcoin incorporated in their services. So uh, the obvious one is MicroStrategy. That's probably the best way to do it. You can buy Bitcoin miners uh, like Riot blockchain and things. Um, I don't personally hold any of that. I do, I should mention, I have uh, long dated calls on uh, MicroStrategy. Uh, and then things like Square and PayPal are getting into the business. Um, Tesla holds it on its balance sheet now. So things like that, those are kind yeah. of indirect ways to own Bitcoin. Awesome. Um, I've taken up a large portion of the interview talking about Bitcoin in the end, which but I think it's, it's a really interesting time to talk about it, so I'm glad I have. But if we could quickly just move on to your hedge funds, um, I think the most interesting thing thing for me is the sort of proprietary models you've, you've um, created about how you invest. Uh, and it just if you could just take us through your, your strategy, uh, I wrote down films here, which, which is an interesting one. Is that, is that the way you approach all investments? I mean, oh, well, maybe not Bitcoin, but... So, uh, yeah, so films, th those are for the equities that I own, and they tend to be my long-term stock holdings. And films is an acronym that I came up with. It I'm, a, I'm an acronym guy. I used to, used to be in a band, and, I, and so I like writing copy and doing stuff like that. Films is just the easy way for me to remember it. So it's the F is for founder-led, uh, I is for innovative, L is long-term value creator, M is master capital allocator, and S is stakeholder friendly. So I look for companies that I want to hold for the long term that meet all of those criteria. If you if you have a critical eye, you'll notice that only the F is um, not subjective. So is it founder led? That's actually my my primary criteria because I think that the great companies that are founder led tend to have their best returns in their early days while yeah, the founder is involved. Um, and then, and then subjectively, are they innovative? Are they long-term value creators? Are, is, the, is the team good at uh, allocating capital? And, and then are they stakeholder friendly? Do the, do the customers like their service? Do the um, employees yeah, like yeah. working there? Things like that. So I, I, can, I can share. I, I'm, I'm very open about this stuff. I, the list that I have, I actually just recently sold Amazon because Jeff Bezos finally retired uh, and moved up to whatever executive chairman. Um, so um, it, it's hard to say goodbye to these companies that that I've held for a long time, but I try not to uh, be emotionally attached to them because that's how you you can lose money over time too. Um, other current films that I hold in my fund are Mercado Libre, uh, Netflix, uh, Nvidia, Shopify. Um, Square and Tesla as well. So I get a lot of flack for some of those. And, and uh, from a value perspective, you know, I, I, I trained as a, as a value investor and value investing has not worked very well for the last decade or so. So I get a lot of flack for holding these things that are trading at whatever yeah. 10x or more revenues. Um, but honestly, you know, the, these are what works. And I think they work because of exactly what we've been talking about earlier, the Federal Reserve and all these central banks printing crazy amounts of money and all the quantitative easing and the low interest rates. It creates funny money. And like it doesn't it doesn't pay to 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 um, be. How do I say this? The things that worked in the past valuation metrics don't work as well today because basically. Yep fiat has been compromised and the value of fiat depreciating so quickly yeah, see, that these valuation metrics don't yeah. work like they used to. Um, and it's kind of hard to describe, but that's, I came to that conclusion several years ago and it's been, uh, <laughs> it's, I've had much better returns since I came to that conclusion. I think, by the way, just for the value investors listening, at some point we will return to a value oriented system. I think uh, by about 2030, I think we're going to have a super painful really? decade for stocks yeah. and bonds. And then it, by 2030, people are going to hate stocks and they're going to hate bonds. And that's going to be the time to start getting back into them. And that's when value should start. So you think um, once you've had this peak, it, will, it won't get back there for quite some time, you think, after this? Well, it, it depends. You know, I, I don't really like to make those kind of, I, I kind of from a conceptual point would say yes. I think that in general, uh, they have a the tough slog. I think um, we're due for a 1970s type yeah. decade of stagflation. So I think the economy is going to stagnate and I think inflation will rise. And that really is bad for stocks and bonds. And so that's where you're going to want to know how to invest in other yeah. things that do well in those conditions and things like commodities, Bitcoin, gold, real estate, other hard um, assets. And so you're, well. you're, it's a long, short hedge fund. So you're taking advantage of uh, downtrends as well. What, what sort of warning signals do you look for? Let's just say um in the overall stock market that would you know trigger you to sort of um take out a short position 
Mm. Sure. Well, I'll tell you what I did back in February of 2020 in March, uh, right as COVID was hitting, I had some red flags that were hitting and they were getting very loud. <laughs> the sirens were getting loud. So basically I was seeing that, um, inflation mm. was decelerating and we were seeing that the economy was decelerating year over year. And yes. just real quick, yeah, yeah. I want to give uh, props on the side yeah. to uh, Keith McCullough. I think you interviewed him and, and the head of Hedgeye props to them. They, they helped me with that a lot. And so they, they basically were the piece that I need the missing piece in my hedge fund, uh, as far as knowing when to get aggressive and when to get cautious. Is that what, so the, the quad four strategy was that exactly. The, the four quadrant strategy. So, so that has been right on for me. Um, and I know some people don't believe it and have their own separate issues with it, but I, I'm a big believer in that and I'm very thankful to him and the team. So when I see their, their quads getting, uh, dangerous or signaling tough times ahead, I, I get super cautious. So I'll, I, I don't have any problem with, you know, even I talk about my film stocks. I love them. Uh, they're great. I think they're going to change the world, but I'll, I'll sell them. I'll short them. I will, um, yeah put on short positions to protect the, the Bitcoin gains we have. We'll go to cash and treasuries and gold and things like that. Um, that's what I did last February. So we basically, our Veilshire clients, we mostly just sat on the sideline and watched the markets crash. And they all thought I was you know, a genius. And I'm like, well, <laughs> just, just looking at what the underlying data says. Yeah. So um, yeah, so that's my strategy. Awesome. And um, we do this uh, in every, every interview. There's just a quick fire round of questions to round off um, the interview. And uh, it's just six, I think I've got here. Uh, and if you just quickly, it's, it's not, not looking for long answers. It's just whatever comes to mind, basically. Um, so I'll just roll through those now. So the first one is, have you got a top altcoin? Uh, Ethereum, if, the, if it's considered an alt. Fair play, yeah. And uh, favorite book could be investing, not investing? Uh, I would say the most transformative one was the Bitcoin standard by Saifedina Moose. That's what put me over the top and turned me into a Bitcoin fanatic. Awesome. And um, an investing hero you follow? Who? Uh, Mark Yusko. Mark He's Yusko. the one who taught me that I've, I always had believed it, but he says uh, to think of innovation as an asset class. And ever since that got pounded into my head, that's how I've invested in my hedge fund and have not regretted it. Um, one thing being a doctor has taught you about the markets, if anything, <laughs> about the market is that, um, people are emotional and emotions will always cause you to make the wrong decision, whether for your health or for your wealth. So I always strongly recommend that people learn to invest the systems-based approach and not an emotional approach. Interesting. And one thing that makes Colorado so special? Oh man, I hate talking about it because everybody keeps moving here, but it's, uh, it's just the greatest place to live. It's sunny almost all the time. The weather's great. It's very fit in general, athletic people, and it's just a fun, healthy state to live in. I love it. Awesome. And finally, top tip for your younger self. Difficult one. Oof. Buy Bitcoin and hold it. <laughs> Don't sell your Bitcoin. Everybody, I, I tweeted this the other day. Uh, what, what is your uh, like most regrettable Bitcoin story of, of selling? And everybody has their story of, you know, they sold it to buy pizza or, they, <laughs> you know, whatever. They lost their keys or they what. There's all these sad stories, but it's basically never a good idea over the long term to sell your Bitcoin. So if I could go back in time, I'd say just buy it, sock it away and forget about it. Awesome, Jeff. Um, one minute left before the hour, which is great. So, um, really enjoyed that. It was uh, really interesting to talk about, uh, well, particularly Bitcoin. I think I've been waiting to talk to you about it for quite some time. So really, really uh, enjoyed having that conversation. You, thank you for giving us the time. My pleasure. Is there anything you'd like to say to listen before you before you uh, close it off? Um, well, first of all, thanks for having me, Ed. I really enjoyed talking with you as well. Uh, you, you, like me, get really excited when you talk about Bitcoin and just the potential that it has to really change the world. Uh, for the better and give the little guy a chance. I think that's awesome. I guess my other thing, if people um, want to find me, I'm really active on Twitter and my Twitter handle is at Valeshire Cap. It's V-A-I-L-S-H-I-R-E-C-A-P. And don't be afraid to reach out. I'm just a regular guy and love talking about this stuff. And uh, I open source all of my best ideas so we can all learn and, and grow together. Awesome. We'll put these uh, links to your website and Twitter in the um, in the notes as well. So just for people's reference. Great. Sounds good. Thanks, Jeff. Have a great rest of the day. Thanks a lot, Ed. I appreciate it. Have a great day. 
Thanks for listening, everyone. Just a quick note before we sign off. If you're looking for an easily digestible daily update on the markets, this might be of interest. Opto Updates is our short newsletter sent every day during the trading week, giving you a bulleted list of the top seven stories from the global stock markets. We've done the hard work for you, highlighting relevant opportunities and trends. And in addition, we'll also keep you notified of any new products, stock reports, or webinars from the Opto world. If you're interested, sign up using the link in the show notes. And thanks also to Kofruition for consulting on and producing the show. Until next time.